0: Welcome back to A Pot Upon a Hill. I'm Mr. Copeland. And I'm Mr. Vosliadis. We're starting here at 8-3 notes. We're looking at the conclusion of the domestic policy for this period. And we're going to start at Part D of your notes with the Warren Court and Individual Rights from 1953 to 1969.
1: If you remember from other, like, previous lectures, Warren Court was a media term popularly coined for Chief Justice Earl Warren being, you know, very progressive in terms of the decision that he made. And we see him mostly associated with Brown v. Ed. but there were several other constitutional cases that he presided over, and those decisions under his stewardship really promoted a lot of rights for the criminal justice system, as well as state political systems and the individual rights. So we're going to kind of highlight a few of those cases in which provided additional rights for people during this time
0: specifically in criminal justice the first one we're going to deal with is called map versus ohio 1961 a woman allows the police into her home they they say that they have a warrant okay she lets them in okay she's on the phone with her lawyer while this is happening and he basically says she does not have to let them in because they didn't have a warrant that was signed it was in uh, they lied to her okay so two of the police officers leave one stays behind happens to find some illegal materials there And what ends up happening is she's um, arrested for obtaining things that are illegal, or having things that are illegal and knowing about them at home, and eventually she is convicted. But she sues and tries to appeal that um, position, and eventually it's overturned because they rule that the evidence, even though it was illegal, was obtained illegally. So the issue with the Fourth Amendment is that this becomes known as the exclusionary rule, that It holds the police officers in check that they cannot violate your rights in obtaining any uh, evidence against you, because if they do, that cannot be used in court. And that's what this ruling declares, that any illegally seized evidence cannot be used against the accused in court to help convict them.
1: And. Um, Another case, of course, that, like, promoted the rights of the criminally accused is a case called Gideon v. Rimey. Clarence Gideon uh, was accused of a felony in Florida state uh, for breaking into a house and attempting to do a misdemeanor. Upon trial, he requested for a lawyer to be present to defend him, in which he was denied, because according to Florida state law... All counsels should be appropriated and given based on capital offenses. Now, it's very interesting. Clarence Gideon did not have the ability and the means and the money to do so, and he had to represent himself in court. And because of this, he lacked the articulation and eloquence to properly defend himself, so the court found him guilty. He brought it up to the Supreme Court case, to which he said violated his Fifth Amendment rights of being um, given uh, due process of an attorney. The, uh, the, the, the court agreed with him under Justice Earl Warren, and they, they ruled that um, every state court must provide a counsel for indignant or poor defendants. Mm-hmm. So we were beginning to see how how class has an impact on whether or not you're going to be perceived as guilty or innocent.
0: Yeah. And if we're supposed to be about liberty and justice for all, it shouldn't matter how much money you have. And that's why we've always had the right to an attorney, but this ruling declares that now, in order for it to be due process and fairness established, we have that situation where if you cannot afford one, one will be provided for you.
1: In the case with Escobedo v. Illinois, 1964, uh, uh, an event in which Escobedo was found uh, accused of a crime, he was brought into a police precinct and actually requested for said attorney to be present during the interrogation in which police kind of, you know, delayed or at least like ignored this. They're trying to
0: intimidate him, maybe get a a confession out of him before the lawyer could get there. This ruling deals with the fact that this is unfair to him.
1: As a result, they were able to force a confession out of him. Same idea. He kind of like cited these criminal uh, rights uh, that violated the Fifth Amendment. And the court, again, um, sided with Escobedo. And and basically, uh, with this decision, it pretty much mandated that police now must honor a person's request to have an attorney during interrogation.
0: Yeah, and lastly, when it comes to criminal justice, in 1966, we have the famous and landmark case Miranda versus Arizona. And the reason why this is so important is for many of you Law & Order viewers, like ourselves, (laughs) is that... um, You all hear at every arrest the Miranda rights that are read to every um, accused uh, person that is being detained. So, the issue here is that Miranda, similar to Escobedo, is in custody of police officers, but he was never informed of the fact that he knew that he was allowed a lawyer. He did not know. He did not know any better. Escobedo asked for one and didn't get one. Miranda never was informed that he could have one. Therefore, he broke down over the course of several hours and eventually confessed to a crime. All right. This is now. The, the reason why they're referred to as Miranda Rights is the fact that they could not use his confession in court because they did so without informing him of his rights. So it's a reminder to every officer that when you're making an arrest, you must inform the accused of those rights.
1: Earl Warren in his court during his tenure not only did a lot of uh, it like rights, or he promoted a lot of the rights for the criminally accused, but he also dealt over cases of reapportionment. When we talk about this word, it, it means uh, districting. And for the longest time, uh, a lot of state districts were able to be drawn up based on whoever was in power within the majority of the state legislature. We call this process gerrymandering all the way back from the 1800s where a uh, official named Elbridge Gerry uh, was able to kind of redistrict lines so much so that it kind of looks like a salamander, and therefore someone attacked him for doing it. That's what we call gerrymandering. In other, way, in other words, it is a way in which the People that are in political charge, they're in the majority, have the ability to draw district lines where they can kind of monopolize holding on voting blocks.
0: It's so, about choosing your voters, and it will help you get reelected. So this this this
1: issue uh, of redistricting was going to. Uh, be held up in Tennessee, and Baker v. Carr in 1962, and they're going to be claiming that a political party is going to disproportionately uh, redistrict lines to kind of create a monopoly, so to speak, on uh, their power and hold in the state. Of course, Earl Warren agreed, uh, and the courts uh, now, uh, you know, cemented and have the authority to rule in cases involving voting redistricting. In other words, the, the courts now are the ones in charge of whether or not they can dismiss or accept any redistricting that is under question. And
0: this happened earlier this year where the state Supreme Court of Pennsylvania ruled that the districts comprised by the uh, Republican-controlled administration in um, Pennsylvania, they created districting lines that were unconstitutional and unfair in which they were favoring one side to an excessive extent where they needed to re- uh, redraw those maps. Mm-hmm. Now, when we get to freedom of expression and privacy, okay, it's a combination of Fourth Amendment and the first. Yates versus United States in 1957 is very important. Mr. And
1: actually, this is pretty interesting. In the height of the Cold War, we were, we're having the U-2 incident. We're having Eisenhower and his mass retaliation with Khrushchev. Um, at the same time, we are now having a, a court case that involves communism. So the co- one of or a group of members in the American Communist Party, was arrested under violation of the Smith Act. And if you remember in your notes um, all the way back, I think in 8-1, the Smith Act is a law that was passed during the height of Cold War tensions in the 40s and 50s in which, um, I guess, made it illegal to have any type of communist activity that would jeopardize the integrity and security of the united states now these members of the communist party were only advocating for uh some sort of like revolution they weren't specific in the way they did that of course they were arrested under the smith act they appealed and citing their first amendment rights the court agreed that there is a distinct difference between uh you know Eminent danger coming from words and just words that kind of imply advocacy for something as violent as overthrowing the government. So it's kind of interesting. It goes back it it kind of rolls back the decision in Schenck v. United States in which in which it expands the scope of our first amendment rights so that it includes radical and revolutionary speech as long as there is no clear and present danger to the safety of the country.
0: No. One step further, we have Engel versus Vitale, 1962, where there's a ruling having to do with the fact that there's a separation of church and state in our uh, country in that any state-sanctioned or state-funded activity cannot establish one religion superior over another, cannot establish um, or promote one religion over one another. So we have issues in public schools where certain... Um, Teachers are re- requiring prayers, and there are Bible readings in these public schools. This was a clear violation of the First Amendment in that, because if a publicly funded school is going to do this, this negates the rights of or imposes religion, Christianity specifically, on those who maybe are non-believers or Muslim or any other religion within our country. So to promote religious freedom, this stated that it was illegal for st- states to be uh, for public schools to be able to do this
1: and it's also a sign of times and a change in religious demographics in this country because you know prior to this court case there were several children going to public school but it was very it wasn't as much contested because most notably a lot of the children were of protestant faith Mm -hmm. um where were the catholic school kids well they went to catholic school a little known fact about catholic schools they were designed to be safe havens for these groups of children who did feel that they were kind of being marginalized in an overly Protestant public school system. So this idea of establishment and and, and, and the government being very careful of not endorsing one religion or another is a really good sign of really kind of understanding our 1st Amendment rights as well as the the, uh, religious uh, diversity in our our country.
0: Now, lastly in terms of the court cases under Warren is Griswold versus Connecticut in 1965. And this had to do with the fact that some states were outlawing the use of contraceptives for women. And this simply stated that the state cannot prohibit the use of contraception contraception by adults. And this is important because it creates the foundational basis, which later cases establishing women's rights to an abortion are used.
1: So, you know, we have these court cases that are basically liberalizing Either pre-existing rights or creating new rights out of out of the woodwork, and and you have to understand that this is not only happening from the federal level, uh, this is also happening from the aspect of civil rights. But now we're also getting other societal revolutions and and, and cultural movements during this time period. So please turn to E, that part of the the, the the packet, and we will go over that. So you can really understand how turbulent this time was. And when we think of the '60s, we really characterize it as a youthful. Movement or series of movements, and it was mostly primarily driven by students and the new left. Well, what is the new left? Well, in 1962, uh, it was comprised of a bunch of students that formed a, an organization known as the Democratic Society, and they're going to hold a meeting in Port Huron, Michigan, under the leadership of Tom Haben. They're going to declare that they have specific rights and purposes known as the Port Huron Statement. In it, they're going to call for more active roles in their own college campus life like schools uh like excuse me like societies or the government at large schools were microcosms of society so there's a lot of internal governmental structures in universities so the students wanted to have more of an authoritative role in determining campus life on college campus This, of course, spread like wildfire throughout other college campuses, and all these young um, politically active students became collectively known as the New Left, and it's going to be associated with radical Marxist beliefs. Again, if you remember, Marxism, the idea of it is to stage some sort of uprising by the lower classes, to uh, override systems of oppression, and kind of like upend some of these institutions. Now, these students hardly were of the poor class, but like a lot of, think- lot of the Marxists before them, wanted to kind of radically restructure the institutions that are previously established for them. And a lot of these uh, ideas are going to be promoted by college students and intellectuals and professors. And this is where we begin to see uh, the liberalization uh, of a lot of colleges um, you know, throughout the United States.
0: Yeah, so one of the fascinating things is just the simple things um, in terms of drinking and drug use, in terms of how harshly they were treated on campus. They wanted to kind of relax some of these rules. You could not visit someone of the opposite sex in their dorm, not even tolerated. These are some of the things that they're looking to change. And um, as you mentioned, they want autonomy. They want to be able to participate in the government within their uh, campus rather than being dictated to. And that's why a lot of these anti-war protests that we see during the Vietnam War are really rooted in this rebellion within the... It makes sense, campuses. right? I mean,
1: I'm sure if you kind of, like, thought about it, you'd probably, you could be, probably identify a few problems even within our school and that you might want you would like be empowered to kind of like maybe be part of the conversation of solving some of these issues so you know it's not too far off from your age group where these young people are again emboldened by what's going on around them and they want to kind of change their little areas first in terms of their own microcosm and then again go to the broader context
0: but like many things the problem is when it becomes radical we have the issue with this group known as the weathermen all right, and these are uh members of this quote-unquote new left, but they took the view that they supported violence and vandalism of America's institutions, almost anarchists, right? And this is the thing that discredited the entire movement that the new left was trying to establish. Rather than being able to be in the public forum and um, express your views and get some justification and legitimacy of your, your uh, beliefs, the Weathermen undercut their entire movement and they are delegitimized immediately and therefore pushed aside, and that that is a a movement that fizzles out fairly quickly because of that.
1: Now, if the new left represents the intellectual face of, of the youthful, politically active generation, then the hippies would probably represent the cultural face of the same generation. So think New Left is more of an intellectual um, movement and tradition, where hippies is more of like the style mm-hmm. uh, that is being applied by the same people. So these are young people that are going to engage in a rebellious style.
0: In many ways, the 1920s rebellion, this is a re-apportionment you know, of that. You know, we have a situation where we have, once again, a rebellious pushback on the conformity of the 50s. And now here is, um, as you said, fashion. We have the styles of the long hair like yourself. Uh, be, the beads, the ripped jeans, the bell-bottoms.
1: Right style, wrong time period. Yeah, I right. apologize.
0: The only were you were
1: older. Yeah, um, you know, artists such as Bob Dylan, Joan Baez, Beatles, Rolling Stones, Jim Morrison, and Jonas Joplin are going to, like, epitomize and typify uh, the movement in their rebellious nature towards the government, in terms, in terms of traditional gender roles even, in terms of religion and all that kind of stuff. Promiscuity, drug promiscuity, use, right. everything. So the things that you would probably most likely associate with the 96? 60s we don't have to go too much into it because you probably already know much about it however i would say the biggest event that really epitomizes this type of culture is the 1969 uh, festival at woodstock Um, so keep that in mind that is the 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 milestone event that really kind of showcases what the hippie movement is about now in retrospect on one hand we can recognize the wonderful strides that the new left as well as the hippie movement made in terms of challenging traditional norms because we need to kind of reevaluate those norms some of those traditions are inherently oppressive and it took a youthful generation to shock the world and push for change however reality sets in and we have to recognize that change happens slowly and methodically and to a lot of hippies and a lot of people in the new left change did not come fast enough. And many of them, as Mr. Copeland said, are going to kind of cater or kind of be more interested in more radical or violent ways of getting their goals accomplished. But that kind of delineates and destroys the movement because people will now associate a very otherwise peaceful and progressive movement with violence, self-destruction, drug use, and sexual promiscuity. So they're going to lose credibility at some point, especially towards the 70s.
0: And one of the things that we credit the civil rights movement for is the root in Christianity, that there was a guiding focus on how it kept them on the right path, whereas the the impatience of this movement, the youth of, of this movement really worked against itself because before they could really get going, they self-destruct right. in many ways because they do not have a leader that emerges. Right. And when you're led by, you know, popular music and popular culture, people are looking to attach themselves to something, the newest fad. And there's too many followers and there's not enough leaders in this movement and things get off the rails. And that really is why there's the counter movement to the um, culture of the hippies and the flower children, where a conservative movement in the 80s becomes the response to it.
1: And I meet, we need to make a distinction. There is a difference between like the New Deal progressives... Or the the liberal Democrats that we're talking about during this time period and the Martin Luther Kings and the people that, again, that are organizing and part of hierarchies and trying to get effective change done and these younger generations. And I'm not saying one's good or bad. I just need to make a distinction. Again, you can't just put them all in one camp. And the irony and the paradox of the, the new left and the hippie generation is this their hatred for hierarchy and established order is the very thing that makes them unorganized and not being taken seriously mm-hmm. and this is going to kind of breed more fear and anxiety within the older generation of the united states and it will lead to a conservative backlash in the 70s and 80s yeah. all
0: right so as we move on we got to look at the sexual revolution that played into this as well and um, one of the important figures in that is alfred kingsley and it the the Contributing factors to this revolution are really the introduction of birth control in the 1960s, along with this counterculture and how they work hand in hand. And the social mores in terms of what is expected in certain types of sexual behavior from people led to the changing attitudes of sex in this time period, is that um, more people thought it was acceptable for um, sex to happen outside of wedlock than ever before.
1: Right. And, and, And when we talk about the sexual revolution... It's not exactly completely associated with the women's movement, but because women in particular are going to be oppressed because of their gender and their sex. This is going to be a a launching pad, a launching point for women to kind of recognize that they have power and the ability to push for rights beyond their bodies and control. So we have the sexual revolution and we have feminists within the sexual revolution really pushing and arguing for the, the right to control their bodies or decide the fate of their own bodies. And by doing so, they're rebelliously kind of practicing that. And then we have other people within the feminist tradition Kind of pushing for more of the civil rights that they've seen within the black community. So, this is where we start to see uh, people like Betty Friedan, who wrote, uh, as I mentioned before in previous lectures, the, the the book *Feminine Mystique*, that really kind of details, you know, the um, the the nebulous resentment or isolation that many housewives had in the 1950s and uh, she kind of like formulated the reason she kind of offered a reason why and it was because of patriarchy it was because of not being able to kind of have the option of 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 exploring and evolving their lifestyles
0: yeah and it's crucial to understand we're not saying anyone who is a housewife is therefore somehow inferior to a, a working of career not. woman right. but Women should have the choice to, to uh, the ability to choose between the two. They should not be confined to the home and saying this is all you're allowed to do. Right, and that's the key is that she's focused on the fulfillment of their professional careers can help them right. along with everything else.
1: And notice the note the language <sighs> we put in the notes. In addition to this, these are <clears throat> these are feminists that understand the position the function of the homemaker, but they like Mr. Copeland said they don't want to be confined by it exclusively. Um, Betty Friedan will found or find the organization of women or now, which is a very interesting marketing ploy to do and she's going to adopt very similar activist techniques similarly found in black civil rights circles.
0: Okay so eventually in 1963 and 1964 the Civil Rights Act that we passed in 64 has a role in uh, the lives of women is that we have the passage of the Equal Pay Act in 1963 which coincides with it. Right. So the, the issue with these things they are poorly enforced, okay? Many things, the de facto de jour argument, once again, it's written on paper, but is it actually enforced? It is not.
1: And more importantly, congressional laws can be very quickly passed and also quickly repealed. And because there's a lot of feminists understood that, so they're going to push for more permanent measures of maintaining and sustaining and keeping their rights that they, they believe that they wish they had. And they're going to try to kind of campaign for what will be known as the ERA, or the Equal Rights Amendment. This amendment is going to seek to kind of guarantee equal rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States on account of sex. It will be originally written by the suffragette Alice Paul way back in the 1920s. Now, some of you who are my constitutionalists are probably thinking, Doesn't that, isn't that already covered in the 14th Amendment? However, the 14th Amendment, if you remember, in the 1860s, was designed to protect the citizens of this country on account of race. This was exclusively designed for black men.
0: Reconstruction Amendment.
1: So the thinking is although courts can interpret the 14th Amendment to cover (coughs) women during this time, there was no guarantee. At any point that a judge would be able to consistently interpret it as such. In other words, the, the the women during this generation really wanted to ensure that there would be no question that women's rights are going to be secured in the Constitution because there's no explicit indication that the rights of women are protected under the Constitution. They need
0: something in concrete so that in perpetuity – They do not have to stress about that being rolled back at another future event.
1: As you know, in the ratification process, you need two-thirds of majority in both houses of Congress to vote in favor, or you can get each state legislature to vote in favor and ratify this. What I find, you need 38, that's the magic number, two-thirds of those states. What is very interesting about this is that the, the, the valor and the determination of these women were able to convince 35 out of the 50 states, to ratify. That means they've convinced several men throughout these state legislatures to go along and approve and ratify the ERA. And there was a deadline that was going to be mentioned by, uh, I believe, 1979. And what actually happened when they reached 35 by the deadline, Congress, this was a bipartisan effort, by the way, Republicans and Democrats, extended the deadline to another three years, to 81 so that they can continue their mission of getting three more states. But by 81, they fail to ratify those three states. A good question to ask is, why was it defeated?
0: Well, the growing reaction we talked about, the counterculture of the 60s gets a response in the 70s and 80s. It's the rise of conservatism. And uh, Phyllis Schlafly is a female conservative who criticizes the ERA. And in many ways, a a female voice discrediting this legislative movement was crucial to its failure. And the sad thing is, it has still not been passed to this day.
1: It's it's a very similar kind of like um, theme that we see in, in the black community. When women are divided or black people are divided on issue, it makes the movement even more harder to achieve their goals. You have this woman like uh, Phyllis kind of like reinforcing some of the traditional roles and beliefs that uh, a lot of white men already previously believed in, black men already believed in, and she just kind of affirmed those beliefs.
0: Yeah, and saying that uh, in many ways discrediting these women as somehow less of a mother or less of a wife or less of a uh, woman if they were going to take on these challenges to traditional roles instead of the effort to conform to what has always been. Okay, So now as we move on, we want to go down to um, G in our outline here. and We're going to talk about 1968 and how in many ways we start to come apart at home because yeah. of the chaos of that year.
1: I mean if you were around during that time if you just went back in time and just transported yourself in 1968 and just read all the headlines you can possibly get your hands on you would characterize it as chaos I mean you have the MLK assassination you have race riots on the regular and you have a depleted uh, deflated support or morale of the Vietnam War. Not to mention you have Senator Bobby Kennedy's assassination by an Arab nationalist for his support in Israel. So it looks like there's a lot of turbulence. You also start to question the government, you also are looking at the new left and 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 how radical some of the, these the young people are starting to become. Some people are advocating and promoting Marxism. The courts are kind of liberalizing some of these laws. It seems like all levels of society is becoming very loosey goosey. So you can you have to understand the context here.
0: Yeah, well, the other uh, tumultuous event is really the election, nineteen sixty eight. We talked about earlier that LBJ decides to step down does not run for re-election. The Democrats are now put in a position because their party has moved so far to the left in terms of this anti-war movement becomes such a crucial role in their their search for a nominee. Hubert Humphrey is really the possible choice, um, but the leader emerges as Bobby Kennedy, and unfortunately that assassination takes him out, and Hubert Humphrey is the one liberal left standing the election becomes a three-way race between George Wallace, the strict segregationist, saying segregation today, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever in his famous speech, and Richard Nixon, the conservative, who's back eight years after losing to Kennedy. So it's a 2 two conservatives, and if you're a conservative, maybe you're concerned about the third-party factor taking away from them and, and giving the presidency to Herbert Humphrey but that's uh, Hubert Humphrey but that's not really what happens you know Nixon is very successful in winning the south in many ways because of how he uses a southern strategy to appeal to those Dixiecrats that are frustrated and disappointed in the Democrats for passing civil rights legislation he galvanizes that uh That base. Yeah, that base that formerly would be voting Democrat, and that helps win him the election.
1: And also, there's a little bit of fate here, too. George Wallace, who is going to be known as the the most, uh, you know, uh, you know angry populist segregationist during during this time, there's going to be an assassination attempt on his part, and that's going to cause him to be paralyzed, which will force an immediate retirement from his political career. So it was this interesting thing had Wallace kind of entered into the race and continued on to this. He might have taken away some of those Southern votes and we wouldn't have maybe perhaps Nixon, maybe Humphrey would have been able to kind of uh, go go beyond some of the, 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 the staining or the, the the problems incurred by the Democratic Convention and the rights thereafter. So it's interesting how kind of the turn of events really kind of put Nixon in a position where he can actually win the presidency. He's also going to pick Spiro Agnew, uh, who's going to be uh, the governor of Maryland as his VP candidate, uh, because he's going to also kind of emulate that spirit of the Populist Wallace again. Wallace is going to make a career of attacking the establishment, calling everyone pointy-headed liberals, being very, very aggressive towards the media. I wonder where we get this from. It's very interesting. Sounds familiar.
0: It sounds very familiar. The other thing that's important to reference is the way in which Nixon returns. The way he wins is two things: Vietnam and domestic. All right, we're focusing on. Everyone's concerned about the Vietnam War getting out of control, so he focuses on. We're going to get out of Vietnam. That's what he campaigns on, peace with honor. Basically, it's a way of saying, we're going to get out, but we're not going to quit. We're not going to lose. We're going to gradually you know, roll our, way, our military out of Vietnam. The other thing that's important is the way in which he labels himself the law and order candidate. If you're um, a white moderate or even a white conservative during the 1960s, you've had eight years of turmoil. You've had the assassination of the president. You have the race riots from 65 to 68 in L.A., and as you said, you have a lot of change. So if you're concerned about things getting out of hand, if the perception is that things are um, getting out of control, Nixon labels and markets himself to the American public as, I'm your man. I will calm things down, and I will make sure that we are back on track where we should be as a nation of laws and, most importantly, order.
1: A stabilizing force in a sea of trouble. And with that, my friends, that concludes our podcast.
0: All right. Thank you for listening to all of 8-3, and we'll uh, see you next time.